everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of Valentine's Day 2024. In honor of Valentine's Day, we're going to be talking about everyone's favorite love story this year's Super Bowl and the Super Bowl commercials <laughs> that went with it and the CIA marketing campaign that brought it to us. We are going to be talking about the Academy Awards adding a new casting Academy Award, which is frankly awesome. And I can't believe it's taken this long. And we are going to follow all that up with a little bit of tech news about the most anticipated new camera of the year. We've been waiting a long time on this one, and footage is finally out. And you have to wait till we get there for me to say what it is. But most of you nerds probably already know it's the camera we've all been waiting the longest on. That is this week on the No Film School podcast. Okay, first up, the love story of the year, Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. Like, no rom-com can match it. And as many on the internet are convinced, it's an elaborate CIA viral marketing scheme for the Super Bowl. And they stuck the landing. The ending worked. The boyfriend in the rom-com won the Super Bowl this year. But all filmmakers really care about are the Super Bowl ads. It is the excuse most filmmakers have made to go to Super Bowl parties so that we can watch the ads. And can I get out with a hot take that I'm sure everybody else already got to? Yeah, let's hear it. Please. There was a time when I remembered that the Super Bowl ads were about cool creative and Mm -hmm. interesting visuals. And I was at a Super Bowl party last night, but I was with my daughter, so I didn't really watch the game because she's five. And when I watched a bunch of them this morning, I was like, the creative isn't that interesting and the visuals aren't that innovative. It's literally just what who, what famous people did I get? That was yeah. it. It was entirely celebrities. And like, if you compare that to the ad that launched it all, the New York Times just did a great retrospective of Ridley Scott's original 1984 ad, which had a lot of amazing quotes, including Steve Jobs didn't know what the Super Bowl was and someone explained it to him. Oh and he God. apparently responded, I have never seen a Super Bowl and I do not think I know anyone who has. Which is like... That's incredible. Well, it's also a time when people were much more segmented. Like, if you were a Silicon Valley nerd in the 80s, like, you probably could have avoided the Super Bowl. Yeah, you were in your garage building things. Whereas now everyone, like, all of... every every, The silos are all gone. Everyone in tech also is aware of the Super Bowl. Everyone is, like, culture is much more You're tracking it around 115 million viewers, it seems like, as of this morning. You know, they're still putting together the numbers, but that's uh... a... <laughs> talk to on someone I follow on, Blue Sky pointed out that China's Spring Festival had 650 million viewers. So oh, when we well. when we think about the Super Bowl and its cultural dominance, we should also remember that, you know, it, especially the Super Bowl is just really cared about in the United States of America, not even North America in general. But going back to the ads, like when you look at hiring Ridley Scott, when you look at Although the New York Times also had an interesting thing that they hired a bunch of Nazis to be extras. So Nazis made money off oh. of that spot. Uh, National Front members, which are like English Nazis. Which yeah. Are even, yeah. But that the, all the shaved head extras in the 1984 spot are actual skinheads. Yeah, I don't know. I was like... There yeah, we was, got a I, like in my lifetime, they were interesting, right? We yeah. got a Martin Scorsese commercial last night for Squarespace, but it was... Not like it didn't feel like a an auteur Scorsese moment, right? It, it, oh, is it, it the alien one? It's the alien like, we're one. Here, yeah, hey, we're here. And yeah, they, and they swoop down. Thing. Yeah, it's, it's all CGI until you get into the limo with Marty, and he has some funny lines. But it definitely, as someone who's worked on you know a handful of Super Bowl commercials in the past, 
Most recently I did, I just wrote jokes for Intuit TurboTax for the one where they had the live robot. I don't know if you guys remember that from four years ago. I was a robot in the garage where it's like, I have feelings. Anyway, oh, yeah. fun job. Good, great paying job. Commercials are such a weird thing. I mean, Charles, I do think going back to your point, it's just famous people. Everything's become branding and who they, who they can put in and, and who they're going for. And if you look at the State Farm commercial, which I liked with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito, obviously targeting people of an older demographic who maybe are mm-hmm. buying versions of insurance. You know, if you look at some of the younger skewing commercials, Mountain Dew using Aubrey Plaza and then pulling in, what's it called? Um, Nick Offerman at the end. Same deal. They're like, okay, how do we get into this sort of older millennial, but still younger than 40 demo that might drink soda? It is, it has become a famous faces thing. And I think a lot of that's because the Super Bowl has become a famous faces thing, right? We, we could joke about Taylor Swift, but for the majority of the broadcast last night, we saw Taylor Swift, we saw Beyonce, they cut to all the other celebrities that are that are kind of out there and, and walking through the crowd, Justin Bieber, you know, not to mention the halftime show. So I, I do think marketing has just gotten a little lazier. I mean, it is a bummer because I think like I'll remember the was up commercial for the rest of my mm-hmm. life. You know, I'll be at my deathbed doing that voice. And, uh, you know, this is the first year I remember, like, did we get a Clydesdale horses Budweiser commercial? I don't think Ish. so. Like, one was like at the end. Right. Yeah, and then the, there was like a fun Bud Light one, but was it that fun? I don't know. You like remember uh, they've they've had more fun ones in the past. So yeah, it felt like there wasn't as much creativity this year or, or anything like that. To me, it felt like this is where all comedy goes to die. Uh, there was there were very few commercials that felt earnest. You know, I'll, I'll give a shout out to Poppy, which I don't think was a great commercial per se, but at least they were just like. Hey, this we are trying to like make health. This is soda. We're re, we're redoing soda, and it's healthy now. And this is you know our comeback. And it was there was like some earnestness to it. Then there's of course the the bizarro Tamu commercial, which played quite a few times and is very you know shop like a billionaire, but with some kind of like all Disney thing. But besides that, it was a lot of like mullets and and you know Aubrey Plaza you know, tongue-in-cheek stuff that just feels like so dismissive of audiences. It's like, we're not even going to take ourselves seriously. And I've talked about this on the on the podcast before, how, you know, a lot of comedy and a lot of sort of the underground comedy scene here in LA, I see a lot of people making things that they're holding back on ideas because if they can be like, we're not even trying that hard. So like, we're kind of laughing at ourselves too. Like that is a risk averse way of creating comedy. And, and yeah, and, and I also do feel like celebrity gags. It, 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 I just, it's not special anymore when literally everyone is doing it except for Tamu, which everything is either 99 cents or 9.99 or 6.99. And they are targeting me on all of the platforms. And I want to stay away. I'm terrified of that. But yeah, I I wish that there was more pushing for like fun and innovative stuff. It was cool to see some some friends pop up in the commercials. Love it when a good you know improviser gets their gets their moment, and I'm like, oh good, they will have their bills paid for a little bit. But yeah, the the comedy just was a miss for me across. Google the board. had that nice sensitive commercial that Stevie Wonder narrated oh. about being blind. For the yes, Pixel I did 8. like that one. Yeah. And I like the Michael Sarah Sarah V one. I oh, thought that my, was like, but that's yeah. real comedy, right? Like he is trying. That's what's yes. well written. It's whatever. Yeah. 
it's well-written. It's a smart idea. It makes sense for the brand. And it was like tongue in cheek, but like, it wasn't like, you know, Michael Sarah, like winking at the camera, bad yeah. acting. He was, it, they committed to the bit. Yeah, commit to the bit is all we ask. Yeah. But, but I, there'll be I an also, article on No Film School this week about committing to the bit. Literally called really? what is, yeah, how to commit I to the bit. I love that. So. Yeah. I also think that we're witnessing a world that has accepted that accidental virality is no longer a part of our current internet. Like yeah. when you talk about the What's Up ad, there were no famous. I mean, I hope that none of those people went on to be famous. I'm sorry <laughs> to the people in the What's Up ad if you were famous and I didn't recognize you. But like it was an ad about common humanity and then it blew up because the creative was legitimately good creative and very enjoyable and it worked. The same way with the Budweiser Frogs shot by Conrad Hall. Oh, but yeah. wise. but all of those, there was a moment in the internet where virality could occur organically by people sharing things because of the joy of it. But, you know, if you've ever been in a meeting with someone and they're like, you know what we should do? We should do a viral video. And everybody who actually <laughs> understands the internet groans. It's because we haven't actually had videos that go yeah. viral without a network effect for a long time. And one of the things you probably get, I mean, I, I, I'm no longer on the hell site that is Twitter. But I bet if you go to Twitter right now, a lot of the celebrities in those commercials have also tweeted the commercial. Yeah. Because if you, you know, if you can get them- It's contractual obligation. Dan DeVito yeah. live tweeted his own commercial with- uh, Oh, yeah. With Arnold. Because yeah. that is part of the negotiation because he has those followers because of Always Sunny, because of that 80s show. It all goes back to that 80s show, the source of all <laughs> modern culture. And because of- So it's this weird thing where it's like, oh- the people who will end up in these, like your commercial will not be as effective, even though you paid $7 million for 30 seconds of Super Bowl audience, if it is not also getting network effect retweeted by Danny DeVito. So they're paying not just to have Danny DeVito in the ad, they're paying for Danny DeVito to tweet it. And it is this weird moment we are in culture. I wish that we still could have some things. And, you know, to pivot to our next subject, this factors in casting, right? Like when you're casting actors at the high level, you are looking at their social media presences. As we were just talking, you were looking at the behind the scenes dramas. There's a rom-com that did well right now because of the tabloid attention it got during production, probably drove more ticket sales as has happened since time immemorial. And it is interesting to think about that as filmmakers that, you know, when you are trying to go out and make your independent production and get attention to it, it is no longer a world of, I just want the best people. It is a world of, I want the best people who can also help it yeah, find think, its audience. Yeah, that's a good, I worked uh, for and with Samuel Bear for, you know, maybe the better part of the last seven years. And for those who don't know who that is off the top of their head, I describe him as the most famous director you've never heard of. Sam mm -hmm. has done well over a thousand commercials, maybe 2000. He did the Nirvana Smells Like Teen Spirit music video, the Cranberry Zombie music video. Wow. He did a bunch of Justin Timberlake. And I mean, like, you could go to his website. It's like Samuel Bear or bearpictures.com and check it out. But he also did uh, commercials that were, land, you know, landmark commercials. He did the Toyota commercial where it climbed Mount Everest. That was a Super Bowl commercial. He did a bunch of Nike commercials. But the one in particular that I just quickly will talk about, which I think maybe to me represents the, what a commercial can be and maybe... It could possibly be in the argument for the greatest commercial of all time, right up with the 1984 Ridley Scott one. It's from, I think, 2013. It is the M&M Detroit Chrysler commercial, right? Oh. Where you have the thumping drums and the feeling 
And then suddenly a gospel choir comes out and is singing. And Eminem is like, we're back. And we know that like we've had this tragic mishap and Detroit has fallen apart, but we're bringing cars back. And Chrysler is going to come back, you know, with a vengeance. We're going to bring jobs back in this place. And hopefully like the economic downturn will, you know, turn around. You can watch that, that, you know, we'll put a link maybe in the podcast article. But for me, it's like every time I watch it, I get goosebumps. And Sam always tells a great story of like Chrysler coming in and being like, we don't know what we want. Can you help us get Eminem, blah, blah, blah. And then it was his idea to bring on this gospel choir because he was like, the only time I've ever cried in my life is like listening to a gospel choir. So he was like, this mm. is how you like, you know, and like bring this in. Like I, I want everyone to feel this emotion. I do feel like when that commercial aired, but like that had gravitas, right? It had the celebrity, yeah. but the celebrity wound up being like all of us feeling like, hey, like, man, this is an economic downturn. Like the, the problems we're having in America could be solved if we come together, if we do this stuff, if we like- And buy Chrysler. Buy a Chrysler car. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, and it is, it's such an interesting world we're in now. Like, I feel like the celebrities become way more important than the message. And, you know, the delivery of the message is what a commercial is about, right? What can you do in a minute? You know, like the Super Bowl spot, I think was costing $7 million a minute last night during prime time. So it's like you're betting everything on it. And I do think it's difficult for marketing and everyone to come together, but seeing them bet on a face instead of bet on a feeling is really a bummer. And like the ones we'll remember for a long time are the ones that made us feel something and not yeah. the ones that just had a celebrity walk out. I, like, I mean, okay. I do feel like there's, uh, there's, there's one of the biggest learnings I've had in, in directing this first feature is the power of like trusting a feeling and trusting a gut feeling and like, and, and, and specifically when it comes to casting. So I've talked very publicly about how we had to recast one of the leads in the movie and like two weeks before we were going to Panama. And it was really scary because like I wrote it for my friend who, who I knew could handle the role and like I, I wrote it for someone with, and, and, and to like undo all that thinking and all that vision of what I thought it would be was horrifying. And we worked with a casting director, Alabama Blonde, who we have to have on the podcast at some point. And I remember getting a video or like a, a submission for, for the role. And it was, you know, basically two weeks out, down to the wire, like make or break for the film. And, and I saw this, this guy's performance and I was like, oh my God, like we are going to be able to make the movie. Like this is somebody who could be this role. And it was it was a very interesting process that I had never gone through before of casting. And we we also cast another character who's one of the leads. And it was very difficult to find this very particular person. They're a very specific type. They're non-binary. They have to have chemistry with everyone. And also our casting director was able to source a bunch of different people, but then ultimately brought on somebody who is the person and is the character. And it made my job on set incredibly not easy it wasn't an easy shoot but i i trusted every day that the people who we cast could carry the scenes and they showed up and they were prepared but they also had the the chemistry on camera and the chemistry as a unit and it just made me have this entire appreciation for casting and and here we are at a time where we're finally and a feeling, a feeling about casting and, and, and trusting that gut feeling that like, I think you can't engineer that. You can't engineer that with like just putting, you know, the prettiest faces together. Like they, there has to, casting is just truly an art and, and a science. And I'm like, so glad it's being recognized by the Academy these days. 
it is interesting that I think a lot of people, I think with the Academy Awards, a lot of people do the same thing that they do with the Olympics, where they assume it has been a fixed thing for a long time and that there's no change. But what we reward, what we award, what we think of as being important as part of the process is constantly and continually changing. And I remember the for the big drama when it went from five films to 10 films for Best Picture. And like it, we should constantly be striving to be better in what we pay attention to. Like the Olympics has added, was it skateboarding or surfing or something? And, yeah. you know, some people I know were like, that doesn't feel right. And I was like, I don't know. Why not? Like, yeah, it's already, but it's always been chock full of stuff that they didn't do in ancient Greece. Like, <laughs> why not keep adding stuff people actually care about? Yeah. And I feel like, you know, as we think about what the job is of the Academy Awards, one of the jobs of the Academy Awards is to remind people that these things are jobs that people do that require effort and work. And I feel like I'm going to go on a limb as someone who's been teaching film for a long time that like a lot of people don't really appreciate what a casting director does at the beginning of their film school journey. And yes. you're teaching it to them and you're explaining it to them. And I feel like one of the reasons for that is the lack of a major public-facing award. Like, I feel like a lot of film students in high school watch a thing, watch the Academy Awards, and then end up Googling all of the people. And that's the first time a lot of them learn what a cinematographer or production designer does. Mm -hmm. Because they see the production designer for Mad Max Fury Road get up, and she's in an amazing outfit, and she has this presence. And you're like 12, and you're like, what the hell did that person do on this movie? Mm -hmm. I have to find out more. And so thinking about that, I'm really excited that there will be Casting Director Academy Award. It is an incredibly difficult, complex job that is a huge part of making a movie what it is. And I've always wondered if it didn't get an award because people wanted to preserve the illusion that that was all like the director and the producers doing. Especially the producers doing, because I don't think the director has a lot of... Like, yeah, I was going to say, I do think it's produ like producers peeing on trees and saying they're mine, you know? like It's like, why hire yeah. this person? So shouldn't I get this Academy Award? Like yeah, it, exactly. The best casts, it's what you walk away talking about, right? I think like, you know, if it was around this year, like poor things would be competing with Barbie, would be competing with Oppenheimer, you know, like, like you don't, these people don't just magically show up in your movie, you know, like there is well, something behind the, it. Yeah. The trick will be interesting though, right. in that obviously Margot Robbie as Barbie is like one of the perfect castings of all time. Yeah. Yeah. But that wasn't the casting director. Margot right. Robbie put herself in that role by coming on as a producer. And that will always be the tricky part of this award. Yeah. Is there are so many projects where the star finds the material, either at the studio level or at the indie level, attaches themselves to it, and then a casting director is hired for all of the rest of the parts. So like Oppenheimer, I think the director probably does. I, I think Killian Murphy probably was a Chris Nolan decision sure. at the Probably at the point he was reading American Prometheus. They have a long-standing relationship. The appearance is there. He can carry it off. But like all of the other parts are where the Academy, but will audiences understand that distinction? Will people watch a movie where all of the little parts are perfectly cast? And yeah, will voters understand the distinction? You know, that's the other like, does Hollywood truly understand how Hollywood works? Is always a <laughs> no, no. Yeah. That's the theme of all of our Academy Award coverage is no, they don't. Whatever. I'm still so excited for this. I think mm -hmm. that it is also one of those things, you know, as a film teacher, I always talk about your journey in the industry. And I try and tell people like one of the unappreciated journeys is casting director. If you are like interested in eventually directing, there are many casting directors who move over directing. Most famous was Lee Daniels, but there are some others who've, who've made that leap. 
And if you want to know all of the talent in town, like getting an assistant job at a casting agency and then eventually casting on your own, you will develop those relationships and that network that you then need if you want to go do your indie feature. Or even if you're doing little shorts. I have a friend who does little, you know, I I shouldn't say little shorts. I have a friend who regularly makes shorts and often has people who are the next coming up people in them. And like two years later, you see them in a TV show and you're like, wow, you really have a good track record. And that person's worked in casting. Yeah. So, you know, those are good relationships to develop. So I, I don't know. I'm really excited about this. I think it's great news. I recommend checking out our interview with Sammy Birch, who wrote May, December, who comes, who came up in the world of casting. Like her mom is a casting director and she worked as an assistant and, and was very much had her finger on the pulse of that, that world and that element of the world and wrote this screenplay with the intention of like, none of these characters are going to get cut, are going to get cut in the final edit because it's such an extensive thing. And, and not only are the characters in that movie so rich and wonderful, but nobody, not a single character was cut from the final edit. And I think it's wow. a really great lesson in screenwriting as well if you want to be uh, in the screenwriter's seat. That's awesome. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that from a screenwriter's perspective, but also one of the things you want to do as a screenwriter is write parts people would like to play. <laughs> and going through a period of casting a project, like I've been on castings where like, you can tell the actors are not excited about a part or there's some derision or judgment of like this. Oh my God, this wasn't a project. Like I had a friend who was in an acting class and they were getting, it was taught by like a big casting director. So they were getting like big scenes from movies that were currently being cast. This was like forever ago. And they brought in a scene from a movie that went on to be a big blockbuster that made a lot of money, but the scene was ridiculously bad. And you could just tell as she was like rehearsing it, how disdainful she felt of the scene. Yeah. And they ended up not getting a very big person for the parts. And it, like, yeah, I think it's like, you will learn tremendous amounts about like what actors are interested in and what they can do and what they are looking at and, and how they break down a script. Yeah. yeah, totally. I hadn't thought about that leap, but that is another huge leap. That's great to think of, to think through. Yeah. And then our last story of the week. So this camera was originally re- announced. And look, I'm I'm actually excited about this camera and want to play with one. And and what I'm about to say is going to be a little, it's going to sound mean. I don't mean it to be mean. <laughs> but it was originally announced. Our, our first article about this camera was January 7th, 2016, with a price point between $400 and $750. It was supposed to come out in the fall of 2016. And then there would be a cheaper version in 2017. And then they, they announced a new price point in 2018. Camera was still not out. $2,500. And they have now released footage from this camera. And it is at $5,495. And they've released footage, but we still don't have a shipping date. And look, there has been inflation. We, you know, and there's been supply chain issues and yada, yada, yada. $5,500 is probably like $3,500 in 2018. God, that's a depressing. I sound so yeah. old when I say that shit. <laughs> yeah, boy, does that hurt. Yeah. Yeah. But true facts. It's for those, yeah. Regardless, we now have publicly announced footage from, and it's supposed to be coming out, the Super 8 camera from Kodak. If chain, half of you have spent this whole ramp up being like, I know exactly what you're talking about. Get yeah. to the point. And the other half of you have been like, what could he possibly be talking about? You're either waiting on this camera or you're not. But it's a new film camera. And, you know, Aerie stopped making new film cameras in 2011, 2012, 2013. 
There's a big hullabaloo when they made their last fairy cam. I think it was Panavision has not made new Panavision bodies in a while. We haven't had a new film camera in a while. Part of it is that I'm still regularly shooting on World War II era mm-hmm. film cameras. Like a film camera lasts a long time. Yeah, there are two say, airy... bring out the Bolex, baby. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like I teach a cinematography class. We have a Panaflex and an Airy 2B. And that Airy 2B made in the early 50s Still, like, cooking strong. Thank you, Steven Soderbergh, for donating that. Oh, also, if you want to take my 35mm class, brooklyn35mm.com. Like how I snuck that one in there. I didn't yes, even know I was, was going to for it. I was going to bring it up. If you, 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 you knew it before I did. I forgot. I, anyway. but I'm so really pushing a, for this class. <laughs> I appreciate that. We're up to four, we've already got 40% of the registration we need to run, so we're really close. Uh, a couple more people. And this far out to have 40% of the people we need to run, I feel like we're going to make it. I feel like we're going to spend June shooting 35. Back to the point of the Kodak. It's it's a Kodak Super 8 camera that lets you roll in sound, that has a microphone mount, that's a modern camera with a digital viewfinder so you can see what you're shooting with estimated exposure and shoot also to an SD card at the same time. So you can start editing immediately and then get your footage back later and cut your negative to match. You, all of the stocks Kodak mates are currently available in Super 8. It's going to be great. It's exciting that I'm excited they are making it. <laughs> I'm also going to go out on a limb and defend the price. Making physical objects is really hard. Yes. And frankly, when they originally said the price was going to be $500 to $750, I was like, LOL, no, it's not. And <laughs> it's, I, I know a lot of you are thinking, man, that's a lot of money. And for those of you thinking, man, that's a lot of money, you can go on eBay right now and buy a Canon 1014 XL for like 400, 500 bucks, get it fully refurbed for a couple hundred bucks and be completely happy that camera slaps. I've shot so much on the 1014 or the 814 XL. Great cameras. Or the Bolu. There's a lot of great Super 8 cameras available. What the Kodak is bringing is the video tap integration, which is going to make it play better on film sets. There's going to be an HDMI output, which you can hook up to like a Teradek Bolt so that a client can monitor it. And what this camera is really going to offer is the ability to integrate Super 8 into a modern set. Because the biggest problem with something like the 1014 is like, let's say I want to, at this point, every client wants to watch what you're shooting. Music video, commercial, studio, whatever. They want to be able to integrate and see what's going on. Video Village is a thing. And if I bring out the 1014, nobody can see what I'm doing. This camera's main place We'll be bringing Super 8 into client work, whatever client work means for you, because it's going to have the actual I.O. to hook up a Teradek so mm-hmm. that you can broadcast wireless video to people so they can see what's going on. And that is the reason why I think it is worth the scratch, because it'll honestly be a rental item for most of us, except for those of us who end up shooting a lot of Super 8, in which case, because of client work and what it pays, you'll end up paying it off. I actually think the price point is fine. I think it's the right price point, to be honest. That's great. Yeah, I mean, look, not to be that guy, but I think you're spot on with the inflation. It's just like when you announce something so long ago and you keep putting money into it, it just is, I, you know, I'm, I was happy that it's not 10 grand, especially because yeah. it's not like film is cheap, you know? Like uh, Kodak has a whole line of Super 8 film they're releasing with it, which is, seems really cool. And the footage, you know, the diversity of the footage they showed I thought was also worth mentioning, not just like concerts or cityscapes, but they had done some really cool stuff with LED lighting and some other lights just really popped. And it made me want to play with the camera or at least like, you know, maybe want to take a course, really. 
but uh, yeah. but it was it was beautiful. And I think when you wait so long for something, it, they really have to pull out all the stops. And it did it does feel like oh, you were doing something for that t- amount of time. You weren't just ignore, ignoring us and waiting to release something. I I forgot to mention to you guys, but we have a listener comment that I need to respond to. This was from our episode two weeks ago, interviewing director Lulu Wong. And in the introduction, I reminded listeners about how the farewell opened. And per the theatrical ratio, it had a it outperformed and had a stronger opening weekend than the Avengers. Somebody commented on our Spotify, Mr. Booth. They said, what do you mean? The Farewell made $23 million. Avengers Endgame made $2.8 billion. Would one of you guys mind explaining what the ratio is and what that comment is and how The Farewell sort of famously exceeded expectations by that ratio? So I'll I'll jump in and then Jason, correct me with what I get wrong. (laughs) The only thing indie filmmakers care about is our per screen ratio. Like in a typical year, I would say it's very rare if I see more than one or two of the top 10 grossing films in a year. This year was really great. The big box office earners like Oppenheimer and Barbie were movies that like I was excited about and I saw in the theater opening week and it was great. But like a lot of times, some of those top 10 earners, I'm a little bit aged out of that demographic. But I would say if you look at the list every year of the top 10 per screen, which is the ratio we're often talking about. It's not how much money did it make, it's how much money it made per screen. Exactly. I almost always have seen eight or nine of the top 10 per screen movies because, you know, that's when, you know, famously Wes Anderson is the reigning king of per screen averages over his lifetime. Like, I think he won per screen for Grand Budapest and also for, I mean, pretty much every one of his recent movies was the top per screen that year, except maybe the one about The New Yorker, which I really enjoyed, but I understand I was not. It was me and The New Yorker magazine who liked that one, apparently. You know but what? I, I was, was right fun. behind you, Charles. I thought it was very endearing and beautiful at times. Ditto. Yes. Ditto. Okay, great. So we've got some nerds on this podcast who Hell like yeah. obscure stuff. The French um, Dispatch is the title. Yes. 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 And not obscure stuff, because obviously it had a huge marketing push and Bill Murray was in it, but the less... You know, we we like our movies. So the per screen ratio is what is where the farewell did well. I don't remember if it was a two or a four screen opening, but it's usually a good indication to distributors that you've got a great movie. That like yeah. even though you're not on a lot of screens, it is packed full of people who are excited to see it, who want to see it in the theater. Whereas, yes, Avengers made two point eight billion dollars, but I'm going to tell you what they were on a lot more screens, mm-hmm. and they were on a lot more screens at once. So. Obviously, a lot more people ended up seeing Adventures Infinity Acts or whatever than they did. <laughs> that would be a great yeah. name for a movie, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that was what it was, I believe. And I don't mean to, I'm not like anti superhero movies. I really love a lot of superhero movies. I, I saw all of the three Iron Man movies in the theaters. Like, I enjoy a good superhero romp. I just, I had a young kid when Adventures came out and I wasn't seeing anything in the movie theater. So I, maybe I would have enjoyed Infinity War. I'm not sure. I, I don't mean to, I'm, I never want to yuck anybody's yum. Yeah. If you think that's the best movie ever made, that's great. I, I have some movie choices. I still love the movie <laughs> Blow, which everyone is convinced is terrible but me. So I'm not going to I love insult. the movie Bedazzled and everyone thinks it's horrible, but I'm like, I've not even it. heard of the movie Bedazzled. Oh, Brendan oh, Fraser, yeah, Hurley in the 90s. Yeah. I think it's because was... it, it was like one of five videos in rotation that I had when I was visiting my grandparents in Costa Rica. So anyway, we all I've... have our favorite weirdo movies. 
I've been so, my brain has been so corrupted by like the video, like the extended universe of products that I could only assume it was a movie about someone using the bedazzler or about the backstory of how the bedazzler was invented <laughs> oh or uh, the bedazzler it's as a, a character. It's a remake of a 60s comedy too. It's not a yes. yeah. pre-existing IP. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of my favorite per screen averages stories is I think 2011 when Kevin Smith did Red State, did the fake auction and then took it on a, a road tour, a road show, which I proudly went to see when I was at BU uh, because he was only on one screen a week uh, and rolling it out. His per screen average was like, I think something crazy. Like it was crazy. It would attract for like a, you know, $2 billion movie, but you're on one screen, right? And he was charging $75 a ticket because it came with a three hour Q&A afterwards. So you'd come watch the movie. It's a five hour event. I remember I conned all my friends to go in, in Boston. We went, we bought our tickets. Then you watch a 90 minute movie and then he comes out for, you know, two and a half hours of talk. and very fun, but like that was a crazy good, you know, you're, you're selling out theaters at $75 a pop doing one, you know, one theater a week. So continuing his theatrical run at the time, really smart, fun way to do it. I think the movie cost four and a half and he wanted making 7 million total. So like made his money back, did whatever, but you know, you completely crushed the per screen average that year just because you're on one screen. So you're just going somewhere. Yeah. And, and I, I, I think this is very like Lulu has talked about this in interviews, but she premiered the film. It premiered at Sundance. It was uh, produced by Big Beach, which is you know a New York based production company that kind of got put on the map via um, Little Miss Sunshine. And and she and her team were given an offer to go straight to streaming with the film, much more lucrative offer. And they chose for a theatrical release. And the success of that opening weekend, I think is kind of what created the buzz that ultimately led it to be, you know, this award, like it it bolstered this award campaign and success that like really just launched a career. So I think there's there's something really powerful about like sticking it in a theater. And and yeah. even if it means like not making as much money as you're launching your career, but now like Lulu is a legend with a very su- successful sh- Nicole Kidman show. And if you listen to that podcast, you'll hear how she said no to that show. And then Nicole Kidman was like, no, I'll give you all the creative power. So like, I think that it's just a really great story and of a second time filmmaker sticking with what feels right for their film and then having great success with it. I mean, that's yeah, a movie heat, that's the heat like... she got off that was crazy. I mean, I felt incredible. like... It was in theaters here. You know, there was Oscar buzz. You know, people were talking about Aquafina and that performance and just whatever. Like, I just think, look, I, as someone who has made stuff for streamers and whatever, it's just so easy to get lost. And sometimes you have to pay the bills, but if you have the power to do it and you can see, and you have, you know, hopefully the project that can launch that stuff, there's no better way. You know, I, I do think yeah. at the end of the day, like if you can get into theaters, you can get people talking. That's amazing. Because guess what? If it, if The Farewell didn't do that well in theaters, it would have gone to a streamer anyway, eventually. You know, like it would have shown up and you get the same effect. So just the ability for someone to go buy a ticket, brush their teeth, hopefully, and then head out to the theater and, <laughs> you know, like feel like an adult out there. I do think yeah. there's, there, it's just such a different feeling than than what I do, which is like loaf on the couch in my underwear and a sweatshirt and hope for the best, you know? So, yeah. Okay. Well, that, <laughs> there is no better summary than the mental image of Jason hanging out in his underwear on the couch watching movies. I did popcorn. do that. That was my vibe last week because I took last week off to take a break from the movie, which I'm getting back into now. And I, 
I watched The Virgin Suicides at like 11 a.m. on a Tuesday. It was amazing. I did back-to-back features at via AMC Stubbs Pass. I did put pants on for that. But I, I might, might I recommend any, anyone but you, followed by Poor Things, just two delightful movies back-to-back. I completely forgot about the first one after watching the second one. But uh, yeah, that time of rest, very important. Indulge in the movies. I only um, put clothes or- on to do work. That's like a very famous, I think it was like Aileen Brash McKenna in an interview was just like, when, I, when it's time to be a screenwriter, I get completely, like I get dressed, I do my hair, I do my makeup. And I sit down and do it because she was like, I had a professor who was like, it's a job to be like a job. And that always stuck with me. So it's like, if I have to do work during the day, you know, screenwriting work, I, I get dressed, I do whatever. But if I'm just going to watch Red Notice on Netflix, you know, <laughs> it's hedonism too over here, you know? <laughs> yes. Respect. Yeah. The, the life of the childless. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> once you have a kid, you no longer get to just hang out all weekends. You've got to at least put on pants. <laughs> Bare minimum. I mean, depending on the kind of parent you are. And again, not going to judge, but Yes. All right. So that has been this week's No Film School podcast. I'm on the internet at Blue Sky. Um, I do some articles on No Film School. I've got a review coming up of some stuff that I'm excited to play with and I can't wait to tell you more about. You can always take a summer class with me, brooklyn35millimeter.com. I am at Lost in Graceland. Tomorrow, we are releasing our episode with Katie Burrell, the star and director of Weak Layers, which is this hilarious Ski comedy. Very funny. It's streaming now. You can loaf on the couch in your underwear and watch it. Amazing um, trailer. I, Hilarious trailer for that movie. Isn't it good? Yeah. Isn't it good? Also, I recommend doing it from Tahoe in a cabin. Shout out to all the Tahoe snowboarders that I grew up with. I'm at Jason Hellerman on Blue Sky on Twitter, on Instagram. Jason at nofilmschool.com if you want to email in a question or Whatever. We've got some fun articles coming out this week. Like I said, commit to the bit. One of the you know most fun times I've had sitting and writing. Because I do think at the end of the day, most bad screenplays I read, the reason they're bad, aside from you know, formatting dialogue, whatever, is that they don't commit to their own ideas. So commit to the bit. Um, maybe we'll talk about that next week once the article's up. I love that. <laughs>